Hey everyone, Taylor here and thanks for listening to the Bonfire Briefing Podcast. My guest today is former U.S. Senate candidate Ibra Tahir. His background is super interesting so I just had to talk to him. We talked about his campaign, interventionist U.S. foreign policy, the Saudi Arabia and Yemen conflict, and the public's increased political awareness. It was a great, insightful conversation and I hope you guys enjoy All right, I think we're good. Ibra, welcome to the show. Uh, welcome for having me. Thanks so much. Oh man, I'm uh, no really glad we could put this together. I know uh, I had some work obligations that prevented us from doing this, uh, you know, as early as we you know talked about originally. But I, you know, really glad to have you on the show now. And uh, man, I, you know, I wanted to know how's uh, how's life been treating you after the campaign? Happy Father's Day, also as well. I know you're a uh, father to father three kids so happy father's day sir oh thank you so much uh as far as the life well i did not really stop doing what i've been doing uh, before the campaign it was with some modification i'm an activist Uh, i call Mm -hmm. myself an, an activist meaning that i'm involved in politics and groups attending like school board meetings, commissioners meetings, um, groups meetings, planning to do something about what we are facing right now. So that did not stop. Yeah, probably I took a break for a week, but that was it. Now is um, everything is heated again with what's happening. So this was uh, my life. Oh, we uh, we we cut out for a little bit there. I missed the the last sentence or so that uh, that you said. Yeah, well, um, as I said, well, I just resumed my work in activism, and this is my uh, life after the campaign. And and what kinds of uh, uh, what does that activism consist of? What what are you out there doing now, post campaign? So I'm not uh, sure if you're aware of my issues in my campaign, but I was focusing on um, um, three main issues. One of them is uh, monetary and economy. The second one was uh, with the foreign policy. And the third one with the current unfolding uh, authoritarianism. So right now I'm involved in groups uh, uh, regarding foreign policy uh, to uh, call for peace for anti-war uh, policy, non-interventionist foreign policy. And the second one is uh, the growing concerns from the government uh, regarding civil liber- liberties and uh, other issues related to it. So these uh, are the types of groups that I'm involved in, and I've been working on them uh, for several years now. Yeah, no, and when you when you... You know, I've, I've seen some of your stuff on Twitter and, you know, I, I, you know, I watched some of your stuff from the campaign, the uh, U.S. intervention in Yemen, mm-hmm. you know, um, allied with Saudi Arabia. That seems to be something that uh, you, you, you've taken a focus to. Could you talk a little bit more about, you know, some some recent developments uh, with U.S. involvement in that conflict and, 
you know, like what's changed under Biden versus Trump and, you know, like what, what would you do differently? So I would like to just uh, go back a little bit uh, to talk about uh, how it started. Um, the involvement really in Yemen was not uh, direct uh, in 2015 when the Saudi-led coalition, which is a coalition of Gulf countries, decided to wage a regime change war uh, mm-hmm. on Yemen because the Houthis, which is a small group of people there in Yemen, uh, overthrew the government there. And then the result of uh, overthrowing the government was not accepted by uh, neighboring countries. So it is an internal affairs that neighboring countries did not like. This is how they uh, the war started. They waged that war in 2015. And ever since, the U.S. government involvement was only to sell weapons, mm-hmm. to provide intelligence, logistics, like fueling their planes, uh, and providing a political cover for their crimes, because what they're doing is intervening in another country. This is a crime, according to international law. And also, they're killing a lot of civilians. Uh, Not really, I don't want to go to the uh, other thing, which is uh, uh, providing extremists. Mm -hmm. The Al-Qaeda forces in in Saudis with weapons and funds to fight along the Saudi-led coalition. We know that because the news talked about it for a year. So not mention this side of the, uh, the issue. Um, our involvement was just logistics and refueling. Now, Biden, what he did just uh, last week is that he sent troops. So now for the first time in seven years, we have U.S. troops in Yemen fighting alongside the Saudi-led coalition, which is in itself uh, a constitutional crime, which is impeachable according to the Constitution because it violates Article 6 of the Constitution that uh, tri- that regards all the treaties that we've signed as a, as a country, as uh, the supreme law of the land, which is an impeachable crime if you violate. Mm-hmm. So this is what Biden did right now. Uh, with Yemen, and this is this involvement means that uh, they want to finish the job in Yemen. They want to end this war by uh, by defeating the Houthis, who are Yemenis. Um, they have every right to overthrow their government, but um, we are intervening in such war. So far, um, the war killed uh, hundreds of thousands of people. About 20 million Yemenis are, are in famine for several years right now. It, it is really a crime against humanity. It's a humanitarian crisis, and we are participating in it from the get-go. And now um, we have the troops. Uh, so this is a major uh, event that happened just a few days ago or maybe a few weeks ago. And, you know, while, while you were out campaigning, um, you know, were your uh, non-interventionalist uh, views something that you found resonated with voters there? Because I feel like that's something that, you know, like the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and then, you know, a, f- a fair amount of Republicans still, I feel like that's that's something where there's some common ground on. 
Yeah, well, with the Republican Party and conservatives uh, in politics, we did not really have that kind of acceptance to such policy, the non-interventionist foreign policy, uh, because the Republican Party, since uh, the Bush uh, senior, they started um, to adapt that intervention uh, policy, which is the neocons uh, wing of the uh, Republican uh, Party. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it dominated all the party for decades. But um, since Trump came into power, he talked for the first time about um, some crimes, uh, uh, war crimes that uh, our government been committed. Um, they, he talked about withdrawing uh, our troops from Afghanistan and Syria. He talked about our um, uh, meaningless wars. So that kind of rhetoric, and they call it rhetoric because uh, his actions contradicted his, uh, what he was saying. Right. But that kind of rhetoric uh, really changed the Republican Party. I'm in Oregon, and for the first time, uh, to the end of my knowledge, uh, the platform of the Oregon Republican Party right now has provision that, uh, about foreign policy that adopted the non-interventionist foreign policy. This was not really possible four years ago, but now we have it here in Oregon. So when I started campaigning, it was uh, an issue that was not very popular with the Republican Party. But uh, the minute I started uh, explaining it and how it it is mainly in violation of the Constitution uh, or how it is usually, usually built on lies, such the lies of the WMDs in Iraq or maybe the Gaddafi in Libya and all of such wars, uh, wars and interventions. So the minute I explain these things, uh, in addition to the ec- economic impact on our budget, um, I see a lot of acceptance. Yes, I I hope I had hoped that I see more uh, interaction with me, uh, more really uh, energy or power to stop it from them. I did not see that, but I see acceptance at least, which is a good thing, a good start. Yeah, so, um, you know, you, you also uh, ran for Senate in 2020 um, as, a, as a member of the Green Party, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know, and I, I did want to talk, uh, talk to you about your ideological shift there. But also, you know, what, what did you learn from that first campaign for Senate that, that you then applied uh, to this one? Do you think having that first Senate run you know, helped you in any way in this race? You, as far as campaigning, uh, being a candidate, it's definitely helped me um, to, to explore what it means to be a candidate, what it needs to be done, how do you campaign, and all of these technicalities. So it definitely helped me on that regard. Now, mm-hmm. the shift that many people usually um, are not really aware of um, it's only a shift of, of party affiliations. Um, mm-hmm. People go to my platform, even when I was with the Greens, and compared to now, they'll see no changes. I know it is, uh, some people say it is a big shift from a far left uh, party to uh, Republicans, 
but these values and the principles did not change because I changed parties. The only reason that really um, kept me with the Green Party is my anti-war activism. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, four years ago, as I said, it was not really possible to talk about non-interventionist uh, foreign policy with them. It was one of the biggest issues uh, for me. So uh, I chose to be with a minor party, and uh, that party is not really um, consistent uh, in, in terms of ideology. We had conservatives inside the Republican Party. My friend, for example, is a Catholic but she's still a devoted member on, in the Green Party. So it's not really unified in terms of ideology. Yeah, the majority of them are, are, are left in terms of ideology. But people did not understand that it is diverse from the inside. Now, when I left, I was thinking about the practicality of being in a third party right now. Uh, a lot has changed uh, a lot of issues are, are very urgent right now. And building a third party that is not part of the establishment, uh, which was the goal of being with third parties, um, I don't think it's possible right now uh, in terms of the urgency of the issues. And uh, in addition to the shifts that I've been, I've been seeing right now, uh, with the Republican Party, for example, the foreign policy. The Republican Party has changed in terms of foreign policy. Uh, we can see discussions about corporatism, which is uh, um, the control of corporations on the government. Mm-hmm. This discussion was absent from the Republican Party, but now everyone is talking about it. This is a huge shift. This is what we, uh, what I think we need uh, to to enact any kind of change, uh, so those are the reasons really that uh, motivated me to switch my affiliation. And also, I was um, since I was like the in the Green Party, I was not uh, I did not really adopt any liberal or leftist um, uh, ideology. It was apparent uh, from that po- from that point. So it was uh, it was really easy to switch to the Republican Party because they have more in common uh, in terms of uh, ideology and culture. So this is basically um, the shift, the transition that people talk about uh, when they discuss my um, party affiliation uh, shift. And you think that shift is mostly, uh, or maybe not mostly, but in large part because of uh trump's rhetoric and you know do you do you think that you know those kinds of ideas becoming more popular in the mainstream will like aid in the creation of a third party because so many people are searching for one right now yeah so the search for third parties is uh i think it's been happening for 10 years maybe or more um the dissatisfaction from major parties has been happening for years you can measure that by um, uh, the growing number of non-affiliated voters, independent voters, who are not really affiliated with any uh, party. It's been growing for 10 or maybe 15 years right now. So this is not a new thing. Um, Trump rhetoric um, helped 
changed uh, the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, at the same time, the event of 2019-2020, uh, uh, which, uh, which is uh, events that are, were major in, in nature uh, concerning the uh, public health aspect of COVID and the economic impact uh, of um, the currency and the printing money and the monetary system. These events um, made people really curious about politics. They paid more attention to politics. And when people start really paying attention to politics, they start learning about what is happening, um, the reality of politics, you would expect to see changes. So this is, I think, these two factors led to the changes in general with the public, but specifically with the Republican Party because they kept pushing these uh, issues. Um, So in my estimation, these two factors changed the Republican Party. So, you know, what do you think it it will take to uh, get more voters to consider voting for a third party? You know, because there's there, there's so many people, you know, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm one of them, you know, just as a voter that, I, you know, there's so many of us that don't feel quite at home with either party, but we feel trapped within uh, the, this political system that, you know, that holds up the duopoly that we have. You know, we feel constrained by it. And a lot of people feel like they have to continue voting for Democrats or Republicans. How do you get them to uh, you know, become more open to looking for other options? Well, this is, uh, I think, the biggest uh, problem that we have from the public. Yeah, I am now a member of the, uh, in one of the major parties, but I never told anyone to vote for um, Republicans just because I'm a Republican. Right. I, I, don't, I, do the, I don't do that at all. Now, when people ask me uh, about uh, the um, governor race um, now in Oregon, um, because we nominated someone who's part of the establishment. She's a Republican, but she's one of the establishment people here in Oregon. When they ask me about voting for her, I, I, I advise against it. So I, I, I actively do that because uh, my focus are, is issues, uh, fixing issues, fixing our problems, not to play in uh, partisan uh, games as, as if it's a sport game. I don't do that. So there's a, a huge factor here when we talk about the public awareness. It is really difficult uh, to penetrate because how can you convince uh, the majority of the people that you can vote for whoever you want and do not really afraid of uh, playing these uh, partisan games. It is uh, it is only a conception, but we cannot really change it. We are struggling with, with this kind of uh, change, conceptual change. It is just awareness, it is a concept. But um, unfortunately, if you are not uh, recognized by the majority of the people, if you are not leading the people if you can't mobilize the people that kind of uh, influence is not really possible uh, so some people um, suggested uh, 
change in the way that we elect people. I mean, uh, the election uh, mechanism uh, from single voting to, uh, for example, star voting or maybe ranked choice voting. Right. That would help. Well, it might help. But again, the problem, the, the biggest obstacle is the public awareness. If they just realize that they have the power for change, if they decide to vote for third party, that, that, that change will happen. But that will, again, it's difficult to come by. Uh, this is a struggle. This is why we talk about sometimes propaganda, brainwashing, and all of these methods, because they are effective. Right. These methods can control the, the public awareness, and the public awareness is the essence of any change. We cannot really change it right now. We don't have the power to change it. Uh, so maybe someday, maybe someday we, we can do that. Yeah, I mean, it would all, I, I mean, yeah, because the, the change is not going to come from within a system that benefits from you know keeping the status quo so you know i almost feel like it would have to be some sort of like mass uh some sort of massive grassroots movement you know i mean something that was really driven by people um to really see that kind of change yeah you know because i mean it's just not really realistic to expect any sort of legislation to come through you know helping out independent candidates or third parties or what have you. I mean, you know, is, is the answer just getting that message out to as many people as possible or. So when you talk about uh, public awareness, you're talking about the masses um, partially um, just hammering on the issue. Keep talk, keeping, uh, keeping the issue alive, talking about it as much as we can. And trying to gain one one person at a time, it might help. But at the same time, um, when I was campaigning, now I expected uh, that the 2020 really changed people. Uh, they they've seen how the government is treating them, and how far the government is willing to go uh, to implement some of these uh, policies. I had hoped that we can see a lot of change, a lot of interest in politics. Well, the result of my observation is, yes, there is a significant change, a significant interest in politics, but uh, I was disappointed to see that the majority of the people are still not really interested in looking into their candidates and knowing what they are doing to them, or maybe learning about politics. So even after 2020, I called uh, the harsh lessons of 2020. It was really harsh. Now the people are poor by uh, 20% just in two years. This is a huge thing, but they don't know about it. They are poor by 20%. Each American is 20% poorer than two years ago, but still they don't know about that. They're not interested in knowing why did that happen, and they're not interested even if they know why did that happen. They're not interested in taking action to prevent that from happening or fixing it. So that tells me that the people really are not serious about change. Uh, They talk, 
about it, but they're not serious about it. Right. Uh, this is a huge, a huge disappointment for this disappointment for me. Uh, I don't know actually what to do about it. Yeah, I mean it's a. I don't know. Yeah, no, it, it's a really difficult problem to uh, to try to solve. I know. I know we're going to be coming up on a time here, so I just, I just kind of wanted to, you know, um, ask you about two more things. Um, you know, you you have a a background in philosophy, studied philosophy in in college, and I know that that very much so influences your your you know, your political beliefs today. I was wondering how, how you first got interested in, in philosophy and what caused you to, uh, to want to suit, to pursue it in higher education. Well, the, my interest was, uh, when I was a teenager, actually, uh, this is when, when I decided uh, that I wanted to be uh, in philosophy, to study philosophy. Um, the major issue that led me to study philosophy was, uh, um, the conflict so to speak, between, between uh, religion and modern uh, culture. This is a huge thing. When we talk about uh, public awareness, value system, um, we often dismiss the transition that the humanity is witnessing from the value system that is based on religion to a value system that is not based really uh, on anything that we are familiar with. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean to society? So usually if you want to know this is wrong or right, uh, you would go to religion. To know the principles, the uh, value system now, uh, at least half of uh, the Americans, uh, they don't adhere to a religion. So what do we do in terms of value? Mm-hmm. What is wrong and right? There's a huge uh, um, vacuum, a huge uh, void and the society of humanity did not know really how to deal with it. This is a huge concept. So this is what led me uh, briefly uh, to get involved in philosophy because they talk about these issues. They discuss um, such issues related to society and religion and value system and ethics. Yeah, no, I, um, yeah, no, I thought, I thought it was really interesting looking, um, into your background and seeing that philosophy background me and um i actually had a buddy of mine on it in the last podcast we we both studied philosophy uh in college and, you know so that was one big thing uh that stuck out to me about your race and and your background um you, you also went to uh high school in kuwait is that right yeah correct so i i my family, my 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 father lives here in the U in Oregon in the U.S. My uh, my mother lives overseas. They separated, so uh, I lived a huge a huge uh, part of my life just overseas with my mom and back and forth. So uh, my school years, the high school and uh, middle school, were in Kuwait. Um, so I was exposed to a different culture. And my mom is Persian. Uh, Kuwait is an Arab country. So it is not a Persian country, but my mom is Persian who lives in, a, in an Arabic country. So it was like a, a very uh, a diverse like cultures that I was exposed to. Um, yeah, that was my experience there. Yeah, and had you ever visited before you moved there with your mom, or or was that like your first experience going there? 
No, it was always like back and forth all the time because they have a family. I mean, my parents. So as soon as since I was a kid, uh, we just go back and forth all the time. But uh, when I went to school there, uh, I I remained uh, in, there for ten years. Oh wow! Here. Um, so when I came back here, I lost. Uh, I started like having an accent. I lost my language because it was like a school year, so, like middle school and high school. It was really difficult for me. But anyhow. Um, I regained it uh, slowly. No, I mean that had to. I mean that had to be an awesome experience, man. Going over there and doing that. Well, you know, I've I've really enjoyed talking to you today. I really appreciate the, you know, the time that you've taken to come on here. I mean, you, you know, what's uh what, what's next for you? Are you thinking about running for office in the future? Are you going to keep up, you know, with the activism that you've been doing? What What do you uh got any future plans? So I did run for a U.S. Senate race, which is a statewide race. Mm-hmm. It, it, it requires a lot of energy, a lot of time, uh, a lot of money, too. I'm not sure if I'm going to do that without having uh, a better resources. Uh, right. Meanwhile, I'm involved in politics. Um, we are working on a caucus inside the Republican Party. It's called the... Uh, liberty caucus inside the republican party to push these issues so this is what uh, we are focusing on right now me and my friend uh running for office is uh, an an option that we need to think about probably a year from now i don't have any answer and so far there's no plan to run for any office i know i I definitely understand man it you know it it takes a lot to run for a seat like that, especially a statewide uh, U.S. Senate seat. So, you know, what, whatever you end up doing in the future, man, I, I'm going to be watching. Um, I'm going to be supporting the stuff that you do. You know, I, I really appreciate you taking the, the the time to come on the show. And, you know, I no, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the conversation, man. Well, thank you so much. It is really my pleasure. And any time we can talk uh, with people, we'll do it. This is what we do. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, take it easy, man. Happy Father's Day. Go spend some time with the kids. I'm glad your wife gave you permission to come on the show, but enjoy the rest of your Father's Day, man. Thank you so much. Have a good one. All right, you too. That was my conversation with former U.S. Senate candidate Ibra Tire. I really enjoyed talking to Ibra, especially when we got into Saudi Arabia and Yemen and U.S. foreign policy in general. Hearing about his background was awesome, too, from studying philosophy to living in Kuwait to switching parties. Whatever's next for him, I'll definitely be watching and keeping up. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Bonfire Brief Pod so you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening.